Hey there trophy hunters, and welcome back to the Platinum Grade Podcast, a show where we chase Platinums and have a chat about it. I'm your host Callum, and today we're looking at a game that has many spin-offs as a competitive Beyblading tournament, Kingdom Hearts 2. Or more accurately, based on the version we are playing, the PS4 remaster number 2.5. You might be asking yourself why 2.5? Well, this was the third official release of the same title in a remaster collection on the PS4, and the less that is said about Square Enix marketing choices or the choices to make the game understandable, the better. Alas, that's exactly what we're going to be doing today, amongst all other things Kingdom Hearts 2 related. But before that, however, as usual, we have to go through and quickly blast through the admin. So if you want to skip, skip now or forever hold your peace. If you want to find us, we are the Platinum GRA1 on Twitter and the Platinum Grade on Twitch. We are also on Instagram under the Platinum Grade. Granted, there's not that much activity on that account, but it does exist. If you want to support the show, go over there and follow what we do. If you love the show and want to support the things you love, we also have a Patreon as of this episode, which has one tier and it exists solely so that you can donate as much or as little as you want to our humble little show. And rest assured that all funds will go towards better tech and games. You can find that by searching the Platinum Grade on Patreon and all subscribers of any amount will gain access to the episode one day before anyone else and they would also get a shout out on the show. What a deal, great value for money. We also take questions for our episodes on our Twitter, we ask for them a couple days before we record and if you want to get your questions in you can follow us on Twitter and get them in for the next show. Our opening question today comes from a new winter cults and culture and they ask what's a more convoluted narrative? Metal Gear Saga or the Kingdom Hearts Saga? The way I see it is, Metal Gear Solid has had significantly less games and spin-offs than Kingdom Hearts, but the narrative is certainly just as convoluted and confusing. And this is not coming from someone that is a fan of the MGS games, I don't know too much about them, I know some of the story, I know it's very complex, and I know that it's quite silly at times, much like Kingdom Hearts, very cheesy. But... The reason why I would say Kingdom Hearts has the slightly more convoluted of the two is because it's hard to follow anyway in terms of narrative, but it also has a significant number of hurdles if you want to follow it. This isn't as much as a problem now because they've released the collections, but for the last 10 to 15 years, if you wanted to follow this story, you would have to have bought a massive number of consoles. You would need to have bought a PSP, a Game Boy Advance, a 3DS, a normal DS, a mobile flip phone and then an app they're all canon to the story so if you want to follow this as closely as you can up until the collections came out you had to have every single one of these and that's why i think they're just that little bit more complex because in terms of narrative they're probably on a par but because of that i just think kingdom hearts slightly edges it but that was a very fantastic question thank you very much for providing that if you want to do the same follow us on twitter and you can do that But we'll move on to the main event. We're looking at Kingdom Hearts 2.
Now, as you return listeners will know, I usually open up with a central premise and run through the story of the game. Well, see, Kingdom Hearts is a little bit hard to follow, so I'll do my best to catch up, and you just try to keep up with me. You start out on an island called Destiny Islands along with some Final Fantasy cameos and your two best pals, Riku and Kairi. You're in control of lovable oaf Sora, you guys are sick of the island, and build a raft to sail off and see what's over the horizon. All the while fighting for Kairi's affection through testosterone fueled activities and snarky comments. That night a storm comes and wipes out the island, and it is invaded by the enemy fodder known as the Heartless. You are magically granted a sword in the shape of a key and start hacking away at them. The storm engulfs everyone on the island and you are separated from your pals. Then you end up in Traverse Town, a time for those that have lost their world, kind of like a cute charming limbo. And you meet more Final Fantasy cameos such as Squall from Final Fantasy VIII that they have renamed Leon, Aerith who is a terrible voice actor but it's still Aerith and Yuffie as well. Also Sid works in the shop. So pretty cool. But then you are united with Donald and Goofy of Disney fame. They join your party to confirm the weirdest collaboration in gaming history and from there you're tasked with travelling and freeing these various Disney licensed worlds of their heartless issue. Throughout the journey, Riku is corrupted by Maleficent, again of Disney fame, and fights Sora on a number of occasions. This leads to a brawl in which Sora defeats him and sacrifices himself to save Kairi, who at the time was having a nap due to having no heart. So Sora offloads his and turns himself into a heartless, then through the power of a hug, yes, I know, just go along with it, he is restored, and they travel to fight the first game antagonist, Ansem. The man who is trying to build Kingdom Hearts through collecting enough hearts and Sora beats him with the help of Riku, a Mickey Mouse trademark, and then they shut the door to darkness and all seems well for a while. And that, with humongous gaps involved, is the story of the first game. It's also worth saying at this point that in the first game, due to contract issues with Disney, Mickey Mouse trademark was only able to be placed in one cutscene, so he was placed right at the end for one cutscene. It was a pretty big call to give him such a large role in the plotline, but it proved to be a good decision as in later titles, he featured quite heavily and transitioned from this goofy cartoon character that Disney have portrayed him as, to kind of a wise grandmaster role with a fair amount of grace, so you have to commend Square for what they've done with that. Many would believe after one, it's two. You're wrong, and you're foolish for thinking so. Decimal points in the title should have been your first clue. Square Enix instead released a canon prequel to the second game and had the nerve to do it on the Game Boy Advance. And certainly not the PS2 as well, just the Game Boy Advance. Well they dumbed down the story right, they must have dumbed down the story. Uh, no, they did not. Here we go again, and I will believe now even more. So they find a castle full of guys in black coats called Organization 13. They say Riku is in the castle, and Sora sets off to find him. As Sora progresses, he fights all the organisation members that have defected from said group until he eventually meets Marluxia and sees an end to their actions. However, as you progress through the castle you lose all your memories the deeper you go and by the end you have forgotten everything, and are tricked by a woman named Namine to go into a deep sleep in this giant pod thing so they can restore your memories digitally. And that takes you up to the start of Kingdom Hearts 2. Chain of Memories also had a combat style that tried to keep the games action packed and keep the flow of the Kingdom Hearts 1 series, but chose to do this through a card game battle system. It was really weird, and when they eventually did make it into a PS2 version, it did kind of reasonably work, but personally I wasn't a big fan of it and it's still kind of a divisive 
thing within the community, but that's not the game we're focusing on today. So now that we are up to speed, we can begin with Sora as, no, hold on, tricked you again. Another Square Enix curveball was that due to Sora still napping and accumulating those sweet, delicious memories, you begin as Roxas, an anagram for Sora, and if you played the prequel, you will know this means that this is Sora's new buddy. Yeah. It, it, it begins to make a little bit more sense whenever you play it through the seventh time. Sort of. Anyway, Roxas' task is to spend the summer vacation with his buddies, and this fills you in on enough of the story that if you somehow missed a prequel on the Game Boy Advance, then you can just about follow the things that precede it. It also acts as a tutorial stage for newcomers to the franchise, and oh, did I mention this tutorial where you play as a character that you will never play as again in the whole game lasts three hours. And it's worth saying that it doesn't really fill in the story, it just fills in the necessary gaps in the story. You're still left a little bit confused as to what's going on. So from there, it's as you would expect. You go help Disney folks save their worlds and try and kill the remaining organization members led by, wait for it, Ansem's Nobody Xemnas. More anagrams. This game has since had a DS, PSP, 3DS, flip phone and app game for the mobile dedicated to the canon storyline before Kingdom Hearts 3 graced the shelves last January. And I'm sure if you're still listening, that doesn't surprise you at all. Now that's all the story you're getting. If you want more, dedicate a day to watching all the cutscenes on YouTube or something because you're, you're on your own. That's me done. Finished. Although, one thing that Kingdom Hearts 2 does do to its credit is it offers clarity through Jiminy's journals. This is a returning feature of the Kingdom Hearts series and serves as a checklist of things done in the game as well as a story overview of past events and previous titles. And as you progress through Kingdom Hearts 2, the journey is documented, as even if you're going through the game firsthand, the story can still bamboozle the best of us. So, we can finally look away from story and move on to the gameplay for this game. Because this comes from the makers of Final Fantasy, you might be thinking that this must be a turn-based style. But in fact, it's closer to the latest Final Fantasy titles in that you have lots of different combat actions, but it's somehow meshed together with a hack and slash vibe. So on the lowest difficulty, if you do continue to bash the X button the whole way through the game, you'll probably get through it and beat the game with a little bit of luck included. But if you're platinum running like me, you need to master the system. Within this system, you have the ability to melee attack, use magic spells to attack, heal and block. You also have the use of summons to bring Disney characters to help you in battle through various situationally helpful abilities. Then lastly you have your drive forms and limit abilities, which have their own unique skills and movesets which help to perform massive combo damage and amplify your magic spells. Unlike Final Fantasy, the fights are frantic and fast paced with little time to think through the next move. The game also expands on combat through something that no other game would really be commended for, and that's reaction commands. It's something that Kingdom Hearts brings in new from the series. The reason why this is something that works really well is with the battles being so frantic and it's just a keyblade swinging light show, having control briefly taken away from you to watch Sora pummel the enemies whilst you sit back and enjoy the show, which usually consists of a cartoonishly brutal attack, gives you that brief moment of respite before you jump back in and honestly it, it oozes class, it oozes charm, and it just gives you a moment to breathe before you go at it again. You of course also have your party members Donald and Goofy, 
And you also have the option of using the Disney World character that you are visiting, it's the main character usually, in their place. You have full control of their inventory, and you can give set directions for on their fight style. Each battle feels like something you can tactically plan down to a T with these options, or alternatively, just go in carefree. And if you've played before you know, you can trust Goofy, but Donald will die. He always dies. The gameplay keeps itself fresh, where the constant need to improve upon abilities and levelling to take out harder enemies as you progress on towards the endgame in the world that never was. Although there is a constant flow to the fighting that can become stale, so the game breaks this up through lighthearted and refreshing minigames with your good old pal Winnie the Pooh and various other minigames scattered throughout. However, these don't always act as the fun escape that they aim to be. The once vibrant and vast level design of Atlantica, the Little Mermaid world, from Kingdom Hearts 1 was replaced. What came in its place was a glorified rhythm game of all things. The story of the other minigames were that, unless platinum hunting like me, you could skip them entirely for the most part and that was the choice that you could make. However, this cheesy underwater concert minigame is a non-negotiable, mandatory part of the in-game story to advance. Not only that, but each world has two required visits for each episode, so if you want to progress, you'll have to breathe through this tire mechanic for a second time. And as much as they tried, the Disney magic did not translate here one bit. Thankfully it does elsewhere, through other worlds, as the scenery creates authentic and fully realised micro-worlds of the Disney big hitters. Small effects like metallic clangs when characters run in Tron's world, or the aesthetic overhaul of the character designs for certain levels such as Halloween Town for the spooky aesthetic, or turning into a lion when you're in the Pride Lands and adapting the character animations to suit in combat, which was a lovely touch. Now on to gummy missions, which were used in KH1 to travel between worlds, they made a return in the sequel as well. Gummy missions in KH1 were, to be frank, really dull. They just kind of happened, and you got to the next world. So Kingdom Hearts 2 did realise this error, and made these sections kind of more lively and intense through adopting an unreal shooter vibe. Although it sounds like it shouldn't work, it actually does. It made the sections more engaging and challenging without overstaying their welcome. As a platinum chaser of the game who has to master all areas of the game, it was a welcome change. Now, on to why I fell in love with this title. The boss fights. The game consists of various bosses, with usually two for each world, and on some occasions more, with the end game boasting five battles within that segment. Each boss is varied and requires different skills to best, especially in the endgame additions. However, in contrast to the well put together fight scenes, there are a fair share of stinkers as well, with the main culprits being Jafar, Luxord, the Grim Reaper Heartless from Port Royale, and any battle that requires you to simply press X until it's over. And believe me, there is quite a few. The good ones thankfully undo the bad in abundance, the vanilla game bosses offer some fantastic fights that especially on critical mode require you to have a firm grasp of all the game's combat mechanics and analyse attack patterns very carefully. Some gems throughout the vanilla game are Demix, Sigbar, Roxas and Sephiroth of Final Fantasy VII. There are other notable fights as well, but personally I think their ones are just a little step above. Outside of the vanilla game, there are some fantastic fights added as endgame content. These can be accessed in the Cavern of Remembrance, which is only fully accessible by having access to all dry forms and having them maxed out to use their unique movements. It offers an added challenge for data forms of the Fallen Organization 13 members. Each member can be bought, but this time they are much harder 
and more intense attack patterns are given. It also gives you the opportunity to fight those that were not included and were included in Chain of Memories instead such as Marluxia, Vexen, Saeus, Zexion and Larxene. These added hours of in-game content and served as great fan service. There's also the inclusion of the Lingering Will, which we later come to know more affectionately as Terra from the Birth by Sleep title. This fight is easily one of the best assigned boss fights you're likely to see in the game, or any that you come across really, it's very well done. It's intense, insanely challenging, and at the time offered some intrigue as to where the story was going in the initial release of Final Mix. Little did we know how confused we were going to eventually become. The game's experience also benefits from the emissions as well as the additions. Within the game, we've seen an end to the scavenger hunts like we had in KH1 to find all the Dalmatians, and we also seen the end to Trinity symbols scattered all around the worlds. Camera angles were also refined in the game so that you were no longer controlled by the trigger buttons to relocate, and instead were mapped to the right analogue which became a custom in later titles. This isn't to say that the camera worked flawlessly. In most cases it often swayed violently and at times you found that Sora wasn't visible on the screen, leaving you frantically mashing the X button and hoping for the best, yet it was a massive improvement and just enough to keep us entertained. On the sound of the game. Yoko Shimamura, the man in charge of creating a score that captures an individual Disney world whilst also captures the themes and actions taking place within the story, does this on every occasion with a plum. To put it in perspective how successful he was. There's an annual stage show performed by a full orchestra that sells out every single year. Can you name one game that can boast that same level of musical prowess? I'll give you as much time as you want, I doubt you can. Each piece takes into account the environment's themes such as Twilight Town's light breezy overtone, the timeless river's cartoonish retro sound, or the ominous tension of the world that never was. We also saw a return from Yudata Hikari, who was the artist behind KH1's cover song Simple and Clean. In this title she offers another fantastic track in the form of Sanctuary, which is slightly more slow paced but keeps that sense of wonder and euphoria in its delivery, and a little side note as well, she returns for the same job in the Kingdom Hearts 3 series and features EDM DJ Skrillex in her track, and honestly it shouldn't work, but it really does. It's called Face My Fears if you want to check that out, it's actually quite a good tune. Then while on the theme of overall sound of the game we look at the voice acting. Healy Joe Osment returns as the voice of Sora and gives what fans expect, a lovable, cheesy performance, along with returns for David Gallagher as Riku, Hayden Penetare as Kairi, and then of course we have the big names giving big performances. Square Enix managed to get Christopher Lee of Lord of the Rings fame as Sauron to play Diz, and they managed to get actors to play their Disney roles as well, most notably for me, James Woods as Hades, because I think that is just iconic anytime he ever does it. So that basically covers the game, we're going to move on to the Platinum. As usual, we get the storyline trophies out of the way nice and quickly. You'll achieve 15 trophies in total for finishing all episodes for all the worlds and completing the main story. Important things to take into consideration is that you must watch the credits right to the end cutscene and the trophy will pop right at the end. It's tedious so go entertain yourself somewhere else and then come back and you should have that popped for you. It's also notable to mention that you have to visit every single world because you can complete the main storyline without visiting every single world, but if you're platinum hunting, you know, you're going to do that anyway. The next focus is Gemini's journal. To complete these trophies, which tally 12 in total, you'll need to get all of Ansem's reports and all of nobody's discovered in terms of fighting every single type of nobody within the game. These will be done throughout the story. You can't really not do it without finishing the story, so they don't require any focus. The ones that do, 
are getting all character, character link and heartless entries, finding all treasure chests, all puzzle pieces and then completing their in-menu minigame, finding all the maps and mission entries, collecting all limit synthesis, all limit and all minigame entries. They are as time consuming as they sound and as grindy as they sound on some occasions. Next up you have the gummy trophies. Definitely not as gruesome a thought as the Kingdom Hearts 1 trophies, but still pretty tricky and a little bit time consuming as well. To get all four trophies you'll have to obtain an S rank on all routes, on all extra routes, as well as collecting all special ship blueprints and many may be able to do a lot of this without assistance, but for the latter routes a self-made ship really does help you proceed quicker and easier and if you consult a guide to build the perfect ship you'll pop these in no time. I would suggest hitting these last when the story is done and you have a large chunk of gummy building materials built up anyway. Next up we have the difficulty trophies. There are two and they do stack. So if you complete the game the main story will allow you to do critical mode. So what I would suggest is for those that want to blast through the trophies quickly is to play two playthroughs, one on normal and get all the collecting and grinding done in there. It's a little bit quicker and easier and then play a critical mode on its own and just enjoy it. The critical mode was the last thing that I done and it was a climactic end to the run. Also critical level Roxas fight is hard. That's a disclaimer. You'll need that. Now on to the more miscellaneous and grindy trophies on the list. First of all you have to max out Sora's level to 99. If you're completing every single trophy on this list you probably will hit level 99 anyway but if you're a couple levels short you'll just need to grind that up. Best place is the Cavern of Remembrance just in the end hall before the room with all the data entries. You'll also need to switch to anti-form 13 times. The way anti-form works is every time you go into a drive form you have a random chance of turning into this heartless drive form which you have very little control over. You can only attack, you have no use of magic or items, you can't heal and it's safe to say it can really derail you if you have an intense boss fight going on. It can pretty much ruin the run but it's kind of fun as well. But yeah you have to do that 13 times. You should probably do that throughout the run if you're using drive forms quite a lot and if you're leveling all those up then you certainly will. You also have to be saved by King Mickey. This happens in 10 fights specifically so you have to die basically in one of these 10 fights to access this. If Sora dies you take control of Mickey and fight to resurrect Sora so he can fight in the battle again. You'll probably inadvertently do this if you're playing critical mode but if you're just super talented look up a guide and schedule a death into your run. You'll have to take the time during the Roxas episode to win the struggle tournament which is pretty nice and simple you'll probably do it anyway and then another one is you'll have to earn 5000 points on a skateboard minigame. Now this one is purely repetition and practice. It's a minigame that relies on the game having a camera with a tight focus which the game does not have at its disposal so you'll spend a lot of the time fighting to keep your eyes on Sora and do your best Tony Hawk impression. You will get this done but it does take a little bit of trial and error to get that sorted. Lastly we have the end game content. This group is by far and away the reason why this platinum is fantastic to do. Not in total potentially but this particular area is fun, really really fun. For these remaining 12 trophies you'll have to beat all 8 Underworld Colosseum Cups which is a little bit grindy but it's fairly easy especially if you have a fully leveled character. You also have to defeat Sephiroth, the Lingering Will, satisfy all of the organization mushrooms through their various challenges and lastly defeat all the organization 13 data replicas. These were all amazing additions to the vanilla game. 
and added some of the most challenging and fun battles and mini games I've had the pleasure of experiencing. It was DLC before DLC was a thing. This list is pretty standard and then it asks players to conquer every asset that the game has to offer with very little in terms of quirky trophies. The game speaks for itself and therefore the trophies simply just refer you back to the game that Square have developed and in all honesty, because of the plethora of content that's at your disposal already, I was perfectly okay with that decision. Now, let's discuss the scores. Just for newcomers, the scores are out of 10 and categories are difficulty grind enjoyment, the Metacritic score and the overall completion rate. Firstly, the difficulty. On this one is very versatile based on the skill level of the player. If you want to run a platinum, you'll have to complete it on critical mode, but for me, it's a fair challenge and with a little bit of perseverance and mastery of the game's mechanics, you'll get there. Though it gives you the option to do everything else on a lower difficulty playthrough, that suits most people better. And if you really want to be sadistic, it does give you the option of making it even harder as well. If you want, you can do it right from the start. You can equip an ability which will give you no XP throughout the whole run. You know, up to you. If you loathe yourself that much, knock yourself out, but I certainly wasn't going to do it. It caters for the majority, but it does rule anyone out that can't master the critical difficulty. For the major end game bosses but they're fair challenges the only issue i have was the difficulty for the wrong reasons in the form of the skateboard mini game that seemed a little bit unnecessarily cruel and a little bit clunky in terms of controls so in terms of difficulty for me i'm gonna give this one an 8 out of 10 a pretty solid score next up is the grind and here is where it falls down once you beat the game and had the fun with the bosses and got all the cool stuff out of the way that leaves you with a lot of cleanup. You've got synthesis to collect, you've got mini games to do, you've got gummy missions to do, and it, the game begins to slow down. Gummy missions may be harshly included in there as they are more fun than they used to be, but they are nothing compared to the main game experience. So you'll find yourself with about 15 hours plus worth of content that you need to clean up. And it, it has very small pockets of joy to be found within that. That's not to say that it's poorly executed, it's just perhaps oversaturated. And this may be harsh, but I'm gonna give it a four out of 10. Enjoyment for me, I'm going to have to give this one a 9 out of 10. The grind certainly loses this game a point, and in all honesty, it could have lost it a lot more, but the rest of the content was so fantastic that the story, the music, the gameplay, and the fantastic Final Mix endgame content all culminate into a really enjoyable experience, and it genuinely has a lot of Disney magic in its delivery. So 9 out of 10 seems fair to me. As for... The Metacritic score, we have to go with the 2.5 release score because obviously that's the version that we played on for PS4. Um, it, it does include a holistic view of all the titles that are included in that, but we'll just go along with it. So with that in mind, that gives it a score of 8.4, which is only 0.3 less than the original release, which is pretty respectable. Then lastly, we have the completion rate. It was down to a test of both skill and willpower to get through this one. Luckily, I have that in spades. 100%, another one sitting pretty in the cabinet, thank you very much. Clap, 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 clap. That gives Kingdom Hearts 2 an overall score of 39.4. So it is just missing out on the Platinum Grade Hall of Fame by a sliver. Even if we would have took the original version, it would have only gave it 0.3 more, so we would have still been just short just shy of that platinum grade status. It's a harsh decision for me because it's probably one of, if not my favorite game of all time. Alas, from the perspective of a platinum trophy hunter, this game 
does need a little bit of extra love for you to make the alliances um, for the filler amongst the gold. I love it and I fully understand that those will look at it with a view of tediousness and some things on the trophy list it, it asks a lot of you in some cases so I can understand why you want to give this one a miss but you know it, it's a fair point. And that leads me quite neatly onto our closing question and that comes from Acorn Gaming on Twitter fellow gaming podcasters who just released their first episode, so go check that one out. They ask, how KH2 fares in comparison to AAA titles of today? And if released now, would it still have the same success? It's a great question. When comparing it to today's current gaming environment, there's a lot of expectation for these RPGs to create a world that's so detailed, expansive, full of life. And if you look at KH2, it does that and it creates a game full of life. But it's not expansive, the environments are small, they are concise, but they're still full of detail and wonder. Even if we look at the likes of KH3, which was released in January of this year, as a AAA game, it offers a much more grand experience, levels are more open, but it's still miniature in comparison to the games that are out now in terms of The Witcher, in terms of GTA, in terms of any Ubisoft game, and it offers a massive map and a mind-numbing amount of content that can often overwhelm the player, and I certainly, I certainly felt this way about The Witcher. It's what you do with the space that matters though. Take Death Stranding for example, it looks like a glorified walking simulator with a cavalcade of mechanics and a sprawling map, but it just it looks really hollow to me. I've not played it yet, but that's the impression that it gives me. EH2 utilises every inch of space you're treated to as a player. Something that adds to the environment or the overall feel of the game is in every single bit of that game, and for me at least, it's a preferable payoff to something that AAA games do at the moment. So in regards to if this game could still succeed in today's environment, Kingdom Hearts 3 proved that with a little update, slicker graphical presentation, there is still a big place in everyone's heart for this franchise, no pun intended. For me, the story of Kingdom Hearts 2 was better, the gameplay was better, the mechanics were more fun, the overall content of the game, mini games were better. It just trumps Kingdom Hearts 3 in every single way. That's not to say I don't like Kingdom Hearts 3, it was basically just fan fulfillment and it just needed to happen because I waited so so long and I was so happy for it but it, it, it did feel like a slight letdown when it did come out because Kingdom Hearts 2 for me was always going to be the one. So if this one was to come out now, had a step up to that level of graphical detail, kept the same mechanics, refined it for today's generation, yeah, this would have a place in 2019, 100%. So again, thank you to Acorn Gaming for that fantastic question, and go check them out, they've released their first episode of their podcast. And with that, it marks the end of the show. If you want to support us, you can do so through our Patreon service, which I've mentioned already, through Twitter, through the Platinum GRA1, Platinum Grade on Twitch as well, we do live streams now and again, we're sort of doing the Outer Worlds, um, been pretty on and off, busy at the moment, but we're trying to get as much as we can done. If you want to submit requests or propose any questions for the next time, you can do so by messaging the Twitter account, and of course, tell your friends. We're available on all major podcast providers. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope to see you next time. Happy hunting.